right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Fearcast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and getting your life back. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin Foss, and I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety disorders and uh, in treatment of those things, I should also say. Um, And uh, this is a question and answer based podcast where you, the listener, can send me, the therapist, questions about OCD and anxiety disorders, and I will uh, read it, consider it, and likely put it up on a future episode. To do that, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com, click on the submit a question link, and type it out there. You can also send me an audio question. Of course, you can record it and then email it to me through uh, the share through a uh, shared link. Give me the link over at Fearcast Podcast, or go over to Instagram. I am Fearcast Podcast over there, and you can send me a uh, audio question there through um, uh, through sending me a DM and. and just recording your voice, and uh, I will get it that way. Today, I had Dr. Jeremy Schumann join me to talk about neurodiversity as it relates to OCD and anxiety disorders. So this was a a really interesting conversation, and he is um, uh, in a campaign right now. You'll hear all about it, but he's um, uh, trying to start a shift in the way that people think about treatment for OCD and anxiety disorders and having and helping people start to view um, to view things and view treatment from a neurodiversity perspective. Um, this is a very long conversation we had, and I think it was very uh, a, a worthwhile and important conversation to have. Um, I, I will I will apologize for my questioning process in this. There were parts in this where my brain just got completely lost and didn't quite know how to wrap my head around the subject. And then subsequently, after we recorded this, my brain went, oh, he's talking about this. That makes more sense. Now all my my silly questions would have made uh, don't make any sense. And instead, I was asking um, I was asking about apples when he was talking about oranges. So I've I have kind of been embarrassed to put this one up simply because um, of of my um, uh, interviewing incompetence. It feels like. Uh, hopefully, when you listen to it, it will not feel as or sound uh, as bad. But you know what? <clears throat> in the sake of <clears throat> excuse me, in the sake of um, I, I you know putting things out there, and the sake of taking risks and making mistakes, I'm going to put things out there that you know may be a mistake. And we're going to see how it goes. And I need to tolerate and sit with that discomfort. And it's uncomfortable. It kind of is. And it's part of how things go. So um, anyways, enough about me and enough about my, um, my own anxieties. Um, though I, I, I feel like on the anxiety podcast, the fear cast, I feel like we, we, we can share things, right? We can talk. Like we can, sh- we can share, right? Okay, I hope I can, I can also be anxious too. Anyways, so let me tell you a little bit about Jeremy, and, um, and then we'll just launch into it. So I, I met. Well, I'll first say this: uh, I met Jeremy at this most recent um, IOCDF conference in um, in San Francisco. For everybody, if you have not, and um, if you have not gone to a, a conference in person, uh, specifically the IOCDF conference, I encourage you to go. I met I, I met him while he was hanging out with a bunch of other therapists, he types of people in the hotel bar, and we were just hanging out chatting. And we, we got I got a chance to introduce myself. He got a chance to introduce himself, and that's how this conversation got started. So um, you too can have these opportunities, and just seeing someone and find him, chat with him, grab him, talk to him. <coughs> oh my goodness! 
<clears throat> we'll see if I make it to the next one. Anyways, but um, that's one of the reasons why the conferences are so fantastic. All right, so let me read a little bit about Jeremy, and then we will launch off into the conversation. So. Dr. Jeremy Schumann is the clinical director of the Center for Mindfulness and CBT and is a licensed psychologist. He is an expert in the treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders using CBT, exposure and response prevention, and metacognitive therapies. Jeremy is also an advocate for social justice and practices therapy from an LGBTQ plus affirmative stance and continually engages in anti-racist training and self-study. Jeremy self-identifies as neurodivergent and practices neurodiversity affirming therapy. He intentionally orients treatment to the stress arising from being neurodivergent in a culture that lacks acceptance of neurodiversity, rather than pathologizing the wide range of neurological differences distributed through humanity. He understands the role of intersectionality in personal experience with identity. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Jeremy Schumann. All right, Jeremy Schumann, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. So, uh, so you've joined us today to talk about neurodiversity as it relates to um, people experiencing OCD, struggling with OCD, living with OCD. Um, and uh, I'm so glad that you were on to talk about this kind of call to action that you have, this uh, uh, perspective of how to how to frame and view the symptoms and elements that contribute to OCD and how to view that in a way that's a bit more inclusive. So I, I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation to hear what this, what this shift is that you're, you're seeing or shift that you'd like to start seeing uh, in the world of OCD and anxiety treatment. Yes, oh, I love that introduction because it's full of all the concepts that I, I regularly talk about. You're, you're right on the money with that. This is about inclusion and ability to be able to benefit from the kind of services uh, that we're providing for folks with OCD. We want more people to get benefit out of that. Yeah, so I want to talk about what the neurodiversity affirming therapy movement has been. And that comes a lot out of the autism world. But some of the lessons that autistic folks have learned through this and have applied in therapy models that treat autism, or I should say treat the distress associated with autism, um, are probably really good lessons that folks in our OCD community can learn from as well. And I like the idea of understanding what assumptions we bring to OCD treatment and checking some of them in an effort to make this more inclusive so more people can get benefit. And this is going to um, include more people, but it's also gonna make our therapy better because it's gonna bring in this concept of universal design. If we make things work better for people who are more vulnerable or disadvantaged, make it easier for everybody. So I want to talk about what some of these principles of neurodiversity affirming therapy are, and, and then we'll get into how to apply them in the OCD world. Awesome. Well, I'm really excited for this conversation. So why don't we, wh where would be the beginning of this conversation? Would it be, to, would it be de de defining terms? Is it defining what neurodiversity means even? Yes, that'd be a great to start. So um, let's define the terms neurodiverse and neurotypical. 
So neurodiversity is a quality of a group. Diversity is a quality of a group, not of an individual. It wouldn't make any sense to say this is a neurodiverse individual because they're just one person. They can't be diverse by themselves. Um, so a neurodiverse group or sample or population is one where there's lots of different kinds of neurology all throughout it. Mm -hmm. And neurodivergent then would be to say that there is a particular trait in an individual that differs from what is typical through unclear boundaries of, of where we call typical versus atypical. And there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek quality to these terms neurodivergent and neurotypical because neurodivergent when it comes to a trait might make a lot of sense. Say someone has superior memory and you and I can remember seven numbers for a phone number on a good day, but they can remember 15 numbers the first time they hear it extremely easily. Well, they are divergent from the norm, right? Um, by one trait, so we could call this person neurodivergent. But who is typical in every single way? If we're saying something like having a superior memory is an example of being divergent, who has every single trait about them be completely average? It, it probably doesn't exist. So neurodivergent applies to traits, but we also use it as an identity. I am neurodivergent. I'm someone who's neurodivergent. Mm -hmm. And the way that's been popularly understood when people say, I am neurodivergent, a lot of people hear, oh, he's saying that he's autistic. Mm -hmm. Then that expand a little bit more and people say, oh, he's saying that he's autistic or ADHD. Mm -hmm. But that's not what we're saying with this term. We're saying has at least one trait that deviates from the norm. Someone who's got an amputated arm does not have nerves in the end of their arm or in their fingers. They are neurodivergent. Their nervous system differs from what's typical. Someone with a superior memory, someone with a mental health condition. All these are ways that people could maybe take on that neurodivergent identity. Um, but maybe a way that we could understand what a neurodivergent identity means to people who are saying this is that they're experiencing some sort of minority stress that is caused by the interaction of their neurological difference with the way that society is set up for people who are typical that's maybe a way of understanding individual's identity as neurodivergent i experience minority stress around my neurology whereas with the trait we're literally looking at how far does this differ from an average presentation of this trait and that's where the tongue-in-cheek thing shows up is people say is this neurodivergent is this neurodivergent and we're saying i don't really care this is more about an identity of, uh, about finding community about responding to minority stress about these things okay so it's i'll, I'll I appreciate you kind of outlining what those mean, because I think that those terms, as you and I previously talked about, those terms can kind of get a little lost in what that means. And you're right, it's it's a it can get a little colloquially and socially skewed or hijacked, perhaps even. Um, and I guess what, what what sometimes goes on in my head when I hear that is is, is it you, you talked about it as being a phenomenon. Right, people are neurodivergent, and then you talked about it also being an identity. Um, and maybe I'm getting in the weeds too too uh, too fast. But is there is is there a problem with taking it on as an identity? Is there a is there a advantage to taking it on as an identity, or is this completely irrelevant to our conversation here today? 
I think it's actually an excellent question because I do find value in taking it on as an identity because it allows people to start participating in therapy practices or community building practices that uh, that honor individual difference and are sort of liberatory, sort of like retaliatory against the expectation that you're going to become as normal as possible mm. after you recognize these things. So I like this term because it, it, it builds community there, but it also brings up the, you know, the flip side, the other side of the coin that you're mentioning, which is how mental health has become so, I want to say democratized or so grassroots because of social media. Mm. And we have, information coming from um, researchers who do the science and then we have the dissemination of that through clinicians mm -hmm. and then we have folks um, who are in training or have read a book or have some lived experience and they're posting things on instagram they're making uh, videos for TikTok, and they're putting out a lot of information and because this neurodivergent this neurodiversity affirming movement has been a reaction to a medical model that is very patholog pathologizing. Because of that, we see this, uh, this reaction through social media of, you haven't helped me and I'm so different. And I take on this identity because um, I need validation of how much I'm suffering. Mm. And so there is a real conversation to be had about is the honoring of an individual's lived experience a good social phenomenon that we want to see more of this? Mm -hmm. Or they're in our, our big word is iatrogenic effect by people getting information from sources that are maybe less credible and taking it on as something to say, these these traits that I have are unchangeable and this this movement says that everyone should accommodate me all the time and now I don't have any urge to be flexible uh, I don't have any desire to be flexible I don't I in fact think it's immoral for anyone to suggest that I should be flexible at all and this sort of all-or-nothing thinking probably isn't that helpful either so I find I'm on the side where I do that there's more good than bad that comes out of this identity building and this liberatory lens but I won't be so naive as to neglect the fact that there are folks who who use this as a way to say, um, I don't have to be well informed. I, uh, I'm, I feel hurt and everyone needs to pause in their tracks and attend to me. Um, yeah, I think there are two sides to that. Yeah, I was gonna say that in that that latter sounds reactionary to a dis, perhaps a dismissive medical model. You referenced a medical medicalized model, or I think you just said medical model. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I think that's, that, that perhaps is the model that we currently are in, or at least has been mm -hmm. around, and maybe perhaps is slowly changing. But um, as you're talking about you know, the, building a, a more, um, building this neurodiverse movement neurodiversity movement it sounds like it is is it it is in response to this medical 
uh, perspective. I guess could you help me to help me to understand what what that medical model currently is? Because maybe you know some of us, as we're you know in the middle of it, we don't quite see it. You know, fish in water, as it were. Um, how do we mm-hmm. how do we start to see what it what it is and why it is that then having this neurodiverse movement and neurodiverse care is going to be an advantage? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. And and there's a lot I can say here about defining what the medical model looks like and, and versus a, a neurodiversity affirming model. Um, the medical model, let's start with just the idea of uh, that, you know, I'm holding in my hand here the the purple book that all psychologists are using these days. I guess we've moved on to the blue DSM-5 PR now. I got the, the regular old five in my hand. And we have these chapters and these diagnoses in these chapters, and each diagnosis has some number of symptoms attached to it. And then there's things like, if you got five out of the nine, then you have this disorder. And we've taken these disorders to be real things, that there is um, a, if you are depressed, if you have depression, that there is a shape of a brain there is a genetic predisposition that leads to this thing that we call depression and i think if you ask researchers we think much more nuanced than this Mm -hmm. but we talk about it in much more general terms we can see how the drug companies market it you got depression it's caused by a lack of serotonin we all saw this whole response to that in the past year and if you take this medicine it's filling in this neurotransmitter that you're missing and we cured now this deficiency in your brain um so part of the medical model is there are diseases that have treatments specifically for them and we believe these diseases to be true because they're in the book um another part of it is the way that we define these diseases when it comes to a um, a behavioral health Mm -hmm. medical model is that these are observable symptoms generally these are often complaints that someone from the outside would make observing the behavior of someone with this condition. Um, I I bring this a lot out of the autism work. So I'm going to go into my autism example here that that gets widely used, but I think your listeners might appreciate. That'd be great. Um, So if I get a kiddo coming into my office and I'm going to be asking them questions. It's the very first appointment. I'm going to be asking them questions about their family, what they like to do for fun, what they do at school, et cetera. And I'm going to do a lot of that with their caregiver in the room, but I'm going to do some of it without their caregiver in the room, because if they were going to be more open with me, I might want to have some one-on-one time with them. So let's say I get this kiddo come into my room. And during that one-on-one period, I try to ask him questions about his parents and he won't make eye contact with me Mm. he won't sit near me he goes to a corner of the room he grabs his knees and curls up into a ball and he starts rocking back and forth muttering to himself or humming to himself and making noises trying to block me out trying not to see what's happening in the room this is in response to me in a safe space with a lot of child-friendly stuff around asking him questions about his parents i would think this kid's in trouble this Mm. kid's got uh parents that are not treating him well if he can't talk about his parents at all he's so scared what i'm going to discover that would be a cps report for me even though he's not saying his parents are hurting him if he can't look at me or talk about it when i'm bringing him up he's obviously in distress but if the same kiddo on their intake paperwork mom said 
he rocks back and forth because he's autistic. He doesn't make eye contact because he's autistic. Then this kiddo sitting in my room rocking back and forth and I might think, oh, this is normal. This is just what he does. But what these are, are signs of distress. He's distressed in my room for some reason and he's rocking back and forth. That's why I thought the kid probably was traumatized before finding out that, he's, that this is uh, an autistic kid because these are signs that someone is distressed. If I look at people testifying in front of Congress, they're doing these same things. Mm -hmm. They're rocking back and forth. They're clutching themselves. They're looking off to the sides. They're struggling with some of the same distress and they're using the same sorts of self-stimulation to reduce the intensity of their distress. So is rocking an autistic trait? Is not making eye contact an autistic trait? Or are these signs of distress from mm -hmm. being in a situation where um, I'm not comfortable, my preferences are different, my tolerance is different than what you might have expected, and now these behaviors that we're labeling as autistic behaviors are actually coping behaviors that anyone might do if they were in, in distress. And that what really described the autism there would have been something like uh, the concept of monotropism, which is being highly focused in, into one channel of attention and having trouble pulling away. I'm trying to soothe myself and this eye contact is really distracting. I'm having trouble doing that or I'm trying to t talk to you and this eye contact is uh, too intense and it's dividing my attention and I'm struggling to be able to focus on you because of it. Or the lights in the room are too bright. The social pressure here is too much. The smell in your office, the fact that I'm supposed to be engaged with my special interest during this time and mom has pulled me away to be in a therapist's office. These are all the sorts of distress that's leading to that expression. So the medical model looks at the rocking and the eye contact. But a neurodiversity affirming model says, stop just looking at the complaint about, I wish my kid didn't rock or didn't need so much soothing and start looking at what are the traits that led them to be so distressed here? What are the traits within that individual or what are the traits within that situation that led to the, the, the coping response? What are the traits within the individual that led to the context being so overwhelming for them? I don't understand why this context was overwhelming. Let me learn more about this individual's traits. Mm -hmm. And then it'll make sense to me, the functional analysis of why they were doing that, the function of what these behaviors were doing will become more clear. Right. Right. Yeah. We try to do this in OCD work and say, let me understand why you're doing what you're doing. If I'm going to set up a good treatment plan, I really need to understand how this functions inside your mind. Mm -hmm. We say we're trying to do this a lot in autism work where we're saying, I need to understand the reinforcers and consequences of this so that we can maybe do a behavior plan around this. Um, but if the, all we care about in terms of reinforcers or consequences, if our whole functional analysis is something that boils down to, oh, this is negative reinforcement or positive reinforcement. Why was I, if, if it's negative reinforcement and I was escaping from some aversive stimulus, why was that stimulus so aversive? Why did I want to escape from it so bad? If that's not part of my functional analysis and just saying you need to sit with that, then I might be asking this person to take this neurological difference that's really uncomfortable for them and to tolerate it, not to reduce their distress around it, but just to shut up about it, to just stop showing that they're distressed to make their disability invisible, mm. not be a problem for anyone else. If we can really get to removing distress, then this is great. But if, if 
the stress is not going to reduce. All that's going to happen is I'm going to learn in order to get my needs met. I have to uh, be different than the way that I am. Well, I'm going to pretend that I'm different than the way that I am. I'm going to pretend outwardly so people meet my needs. And I might even lie to myself because this identity as someone who has all of these needs is uh, really a shameful identity for me. People have told me, if you just did the exposure work, if you just were more flexible, it would fundamentally change these needs that you have. And the neurodiversity affirming is going to say, let's be honest about that. Let's ask individuals specifically let's give them tools to try to be flexible and hear how they work mm -hmm. and retool our interventions as we need to to get specifically into the traits that that are leading to these behavioral problems but not just to deal with the symptom level about the behavioral problem but to get into the source of that symptom which is some trait interacting with the way that their life is set up and I know I'm still in the autism world. We have to talk about anxiety. We have to talk about OCD to bridge this gap. But this is where it comes so much out of. Right. Yeah. So again, it's it's kind of from from. So we're kind of looking at the looking at the individual, looking at the 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 things within that individual that's that's making that situation that stimulus so triggering, for lack of a better word, so activating that then causes them to need to respond in a certain way and to do these soothing or coping skills that perhaps we would call problematic in a medical model or perhaps, you know, difficult or a symptom that needs to be addressed. But we're saying, what's the, what's the function of, what's the function that behavior is serving and what is it doing to that individual for that individual? Am I kind of on board or am I missing something? Yes. No, you're, you're getting it. I think we stop short and we do lazy conceptualizations sometimes mm -hmm. when we say, what's the function of that behavior? And we just go to a contentless understanding of reinforcement patterns mm -hmm. and not getting into what was the aversive stimulus that we were trying to escape from or what was the value of the appetitive thing that they were going after mm -hmm. um, why was it so important to them why were they inflexible about it if we don't ask those questions then um, then we get identity issues coming up with the way that we try to do this these kinds of treatments and that's where it gets into the the that idea of like I need to pretend that I'm not who I am in order to exist in this world yes and that becomes particularly insidious it's not even a, a obvious i need to pretend it is in cases of people who have had so we're still talking about autism here for, for cases who people have had hours and hours and hours of behavioral therapy all through school from the time that they were a kid it's not as simple as i'm going to pretend that this is who i am it is i think this is who i am behind the mask that i wear i don't really know what's back there i missed out on crucial opportunities to develop my interests develop my identity there was no outlet for it. When there was an outlet for it, I felt ashamed and I didn't explore, missed out on sensitive periods to develop this stuff. Mm. That, that could be really insidious. There is just a true misunderstanding of self. Right. So that when all the pressure of fitting in late lets up when they're an adult, they still don't know what they want to do. They don't know what makes them happy. They don't have a sense of identity. This is, this is what we hear for a lot out of the uh, adult autistic community who's been through a lot of behavior therapy that had a specific goal of I'm going to fundamentally change what your needs are 
versus I'm going to give you the option to be flexible if you consult your values and you decide you want to be flexible here. Mm. So this be a good time to look at what neurodivergent care would look like for that individual, or should we shift into the discussion of what what this would look like for the anxiety world? Let's let's stay with the what neurodivergent care would look like, and. Um, there's a lot of people who have written about this. So uh, there's an author, what's their last name? Uh, Sunny Jane is what they go by, but they have the, the author of the neurodivergent affirming DBT skills book, but they also have a website where they've done a lot of consultation and writing. And they have some good writing about what neurodivergent affirming care looks like. It's more comprehensive than what I'm gonna go over right now. But I'm just gonna hit on a few points here. We describe what the medical model for therapy would look like, what the neurodiversity affirming therapy model might look like. We might do more of this um, trait level uh, building of an individual profile as opposed to more of that uh, I'm using big psychologist words here but the nomothetic approach where we say you fit into this category and now we know what we need to know about you by your categorization uh, we would have more detailed conceptualization we would take an ideographic approach let me describe this individual what does their profile look like so I fit that under an umbrella of accurate conceptualization. I think one of the problems with the medical model has been rushed conceptualization. Patients say, I need you to hear this. And we say, you know what, that's not really relevant to your reinforcement cycle. And we just push past it. I want to see providers slow down, help clients build a whole profile for themselves, understand clients in a more nuanced and psychological way, where we're actually saying, how do your thoughts lead from one to another? How did you end up here? And that's really irrelevant for a lot of behaviorism. But I think that if you're doing good functional assessment, you've done good conceptualization, and then all of a sudden it starts to be relevant to behaviorism again for making good treatment plans. So accurate conceptualization. The next thing is it's really celebratory of individual difference. It's inclusive because we believe that inclusion is the goal, it's enhancing our society. It's not tolerant. It's not trying to do the bare minimum so that we can let someone be included, but it is saying, I'm not trying to change you. I'm not trying to take your edges off. I want you to show up the way that you are, even if I don't fully understand, even if some of the pieces of you rub me the wrong way, I think you still have a lot of value to add here. Now that celebration, neurodiversity affirming uh, therapy is free from coercion. By coercion, I mean, you must do the therapy and you must do it in this way, or your basic needs aren't going to get met. And it's people not signing up for therapy of their own volition. And we don't want to use practices that strip away agency and individual freedom from people as they're doing their therapy. It's just not my idea of good therapy. It feels very unethical, um, except in cases of um, like life-threatening behaviors, life-threatening potential illness and injury. There are times where we might say this person for, uh, for their own good, uh, we might violate their sense of agency in order to coerce them to save their life. 
Um, even that, some people might not agree with, but I think that uh, across the profession, we have this you know duty to protect. So we, we try to do that. Um, but outside of those moments, there's no, I know what's best for you. And I'm going to set up this system. So you have to do this, whether you agree or not. In, um, in the autism world, there's a lot of discussion about applied behavioral analysis here because the kids don't necessarily have to consent. And the idea is that they're not going to get access to the, the things that they care about most, the things that they find regulating until they've done the desired behaviors. And so we're saying you don't get to have any sort of quality of life unless you let go of your ideas about right and wrong and snap to my vision of how you're supposed to be behaving. You could see that in the autism world for, for people who practice applied behavioral analysis from that sort of standpoint. But we might see it in the OCD world. In, in a drastic case of it, it might look like something like strategic pressure, where someone is locked in in their room because they're afraid of germs all over the house. They think that uh, they're, they're disabled. They live at home with their parents. They think that dad's toenail germs are going to kill them. And so they don't want to walk anywhere on the floors outside of their room. And so uh, a coercive version of this uh, might be parents say, you either do your exposure homework today, or we fill up this spritz bottle with dad's toenail clippings. We put water in it. And we're going to go all through your room, your safe place, and we're going to spray everything here. You don't have any say about this or not. Oh, I, I um, hope that's not a real example. So that would be pretty extreme, right? Um, there, There is a gray area between client in the moment decides what's best for them because OCD will trick and lie and there's a lot of support that's really valuable for this kind of stuff. So, um, there's, there's a gray area between I'm spritzing your room down with my dirty toenails um, and oh you said you don't want to do your ERP today? Great we never have to do that as long as you just tell me in the moment that it's making you uncomfortable um, and that that gray area in the middle like um, the supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotions protocol the space protocol mm -hmm. so Sort of flirts with this because we're saying if we reduce accommodation then the child is going to have these learning experiences that allow them to no longer be anxious super valuable but let's do this with really good conceptualization and let's get buy-in from the kiddo as part of this so that it's not purely a coercive it's going to be horrible i have no skills in the moment mom is just forcing me to mom and dad are just forcing me to do this yeah. So I say the good neurodiversity affirming therapy will always be free from coercion. It's not neurodiversity affirming if we're doing something else. Right. Okay, but there's a flip side to that coin, uh -huh. which is it also ha it has to be free from what we might call guard railing. And guard railing is saying, in your best interests, I'm trying to protect you from harm. So you don't need to see this. You don't need to go down this pathway where... Folks who have been through some coercive behaviorism or behavior, behaviorism that had at its base assumption that we were going to fundamentally change traits rather than be able to cope with them, mm -hmm. they might say, no, anyone in the future who might have to go through this will be harmed. So don't touch this behaviorism stuff. 
but I'm a behaviorist. Behaviorism is the most powerful set of tools that I have as a psychotherapist. I, uh, I would not want to hold back my most powerful, best set of tools from a vulnerable population. So guard railing would be, you know, that, that flip side of uh, coercion about you shouldn't even see this because it's not for people like us. Let individuals be the judge of that. Let's not hold back on what these tools are. Um, yeah. And then, you know, other pieces of this, you can go through Sonny's uh, website and see more, but like really valuing lived experience from this and not just taking the ivory tower down to the masses, but learning from a grassroots approach about what this lived experience feel like. And then it feels liberatory. There is a uh, rejection of imposed values and that often looks like anger if i'm using this minority stress model we might think about a chronic illness identity development model and seeing some of the same patterns that we might have seen in a racial identity development model about first aligning with the majority group and then pulling back into a place of sort of righteous indignation about ways that i've been harmed I think that that is not a step that we just get to bypass and say, move on to a place of equanimity about this divide between what's expected for you in, in your life and what, uh, what you feel. I think that there is a liberatory process that often feels kind of angry or feels kind of emotional in, in getting through that. So this is a framework that I use to say, what does neurodiversity affirming therapy look like? Right. There's a lot of information in there, and it kind of sounds like, you know, a lot of, I'm, I, I'm interested to hear, well, we don't, we can talk about this later, if, if there's a difference in the way that you would perceive the coercive nature of ABA versus perhaps a floor time model uh, for someone with autism, but um, that's, that's a whole different podcast. Um, <clears throat> but it sounds like for, um, uh, you, have, you have people listening to this. You, you didn't see the little smirk Jeremy had. He had so many thoughts. But we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll get so all right. So this neurodiversity affirming care is going to really be looking at again the 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 specifics to that individual, the function that who this person is, what they're about, the thoughts that they have. I I, I heard a little bit in there that um, you know is almost reminiscent of the ICBT folks of kind of what are the things in their person's life that are contributing to this story and this event and their reaction but that may be me kind of adding something well let me necessarily there if your listeners know the ICBT stuff they, they may and if they're listening to this episode they may have seen I already have a video out there about strengths of ICBT for neurodivergent patients uh -huh. and I think I think you're on to the right association I just think you put the cart before the horse Ooh. where I think that neurodiversity affirming care says let's look into the reasons and ICBT is a type of therapy that is interested in the reasons and it's a strength of ICBT working for neuro, uh, neurodivergent individuals that it's baked into the intervention already to say, yeah, and how did you get there? And tell me more. What is it about your individual story that makes this make sense? I don't have enough yet. Keep going. Give me the whole story. And yeah, so I think that is a strength, but I, I, I don't think that it's a similarity necessarily as much as I think is the category of affirming therapy 
ICBT can fit into that. I also think ERP can fit into that. I think when we do good functional analysis with ERP, we ask the same question. I mean, I, I talked with folks at the conference. This was some of my favorite comments that I got was that I've been asking people to say their OCD story you know, since I started uh, their uh ERP may have said that all I really care about is how does this compulsion function to prevent you from learning what you need to learn to stop doing this. But I didn't stop people from telling me that. I asked them what their story was. I asked them in detail. I hear about their whole life anyway, because I'm a good human being. Like I care about the person on the other side of the, the room for me. And so I think ERP absolutely can do this and, and bake this into the the functional analysis that ICBT has it baked into the intervention that we're going to ask these in-depth questions. But I do think that ERP absolutely can be neurodiversity affirming because it has the opportunity for asking these. And I, I think that good clinicians have been asking the questions about where does this come from and let me build a good functional analysis that it gets down to subjective experience. Um, but it's not inherently part of what the intervention is. The intervention is much more bare bones around learning theory. Uh, than it is about the the specifics of the person's individual story. So I think it can go either way. I just think that it's baked into ICBT already. We don't have to add it. Right, right. Yeah, and I think there's, there's it seems like there's, in the past couple of years, there has been more of a pushback than against a, in a sense, a colder, manualized, just hardcore behaviorism approach and taking more of a for lack of a better term a more humanistic approach to it to take the whole person into it and the the elements that contribute to who it is that they are what they're about the experiences they've had in their life and what that contributes to their symptoms for lack of a better term i suppose and then how we can start to yeah. include those into the into treatment so it seems like there's yeah it probably is happening oh go ahead it's probably happening on a huge scale but it, it definitely went within our ocd world if you think about what's happened in the ocd world ocd was like untreatable through psychotherapy for a long time mm -hmm. and then we develop an effective treatment for it and it works but people are refusing to do it and they're not learning it and they're spreading uh bad faith assumptions about it being inferior to something maybe like a psychodynamic approach because they think of behaviorism as treating the symptoms well that wasn't true we get down into it we see how effective this can be and we became very defensive we pulled into what you really need to know is that exposure and response prevention stops ocd in its tracks we can treat it now and let go of all the fluff besides just what was important this previous therapy was full of fluff get rid of all of it and you can see what really helps here but the fluff is kind of pleasant and I don't think that it's all one mechanism of action between ERP and ICBT, but there's, there's a lot of learning that can go on that's helpful for people who are in, uh, in therapy that seems more like general counseling stuff, too. It, I think it does help people to learn a way of seeing the world that's going to even improve how, how they might create obsessions. Um, I lost my I lost my train of thought. Well, I, that 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 will happen on this in this process. So yeah. we've kind of then. So we've talked a little bit about 
what what neurodivergent care would look like kind of addressed it a little bit what it looks like in autism land what it looks like then in um in in for, for anxiety yeah. could we why don't we I, I love examples i love you know more more tangible specifics could you give a, an, an example about what this might look like and, and is this is this preempting the universal design um that you were that you were talking about or am i sidetracking us again um but uh yeah go ahead uh, no, th this is what I'm talking about, that neurodiversity affirming care will take in principles of universal design. So what does it look like for OCD? I, I think I may have already, I might just be repeating myself to cover this, but I think it looks like really good conceptualization with trait level understanding in our functional analysis, and then coming up with these individualized intervention plans based off of our best knowledge around these traits, what will habituate, what won't. Um, so it's going to look like more psychoeducation. It's going to look like more validation. It's going to look like asking people what kind of response they've gotten from treatment and trusting them. It's going to look like when people say, I did the ERP and I didn't get the improvement that we don't have just one fallback response to them. Well, where were you white knuckling? Where was the secret compulsion? We've got more answers. So, okay, what maybe wasn't going to desensitize the, the more we exposed here? Where is there a process that I'm saying there's no realistic threat here, but you're actually finding there to be a realistic threat that I don't understand yet because of your neurology, because of your different experience of the world? take those things seriously. That's going to be neurodivergent affirmative therapy. And I can give you some cases for, uh, of, of ways that I've been able to incorporate some of this stuff too. I'd love to hear some of those cases. And, and I think that, that that summary, I think, really gives a clearer idea, and it's at least at least to me in, in, in what this would look like. But yeah, we, we are trying to get to know this person a little bit more. The, the obstacles that a lot of people describe in treatment is that, yeah, I... I you told me to do this exposure. I did the exposure. I don't feel better. I feel the same. Typically, the answer behaviorally might be, well, let's do more of it, right? Let's do it harder this time, right? Or Which we should try, right? That's a that? good idea. Let's, we didn't have, that, that's a good idea. We should repeat it. We didn't have enough frequency. We didn't have enough um, consistency or too big of a gap between the exposures. We didn't um, sit with it long enough. Or you were doing a secret ritual that created uh, a safety behavior so we didn't get the, the learning experience. We absolutely should look for those factors. But once we've looked for them, or if we look and we can't find them and we're starting to feel flustered by it, we can't just toss up our hands and say, okay, client, this is your responsibility to figure out where you're getting it wrong or you're untreatable. We might say, I got some more questions. I might be able to conceptualize this a little bit better if I ask those questions and let's get a little bit deeper into that conceptualization. Right. Because I can certainly imagine somebody who, who in that, when the, if their exposures aren't helping them get to where they want to go, they're not alleviating some of the distress that it's getting to that, that, that there may be a, something in their past. There may be a traumatic background. There may be a, an exp, a, a <laughs> I, this, is, this is a total side note. Maybe it's not a side note. I, I kind of talk about this with, with some of my clients as well, where, you know, we're talking about doing exposures and, you know, they're, they're wondering why the distress is not coming down. And sometimes it's because 
there are things that are just distressing and maybe this is me giving up on it but it's saying mm -hmm. you know the they say oh, kevin it's so distressing to think about my wife dying and i don't want to think about it over and over again it's like because that's distressing typically mm -hmm. i don't want to speak mm -hmm. for everyone in their relationship with their spouse but typically <laughs> it's like if it's if you feel sad in relation to that exposure, it's because that thought is sad. Now, is that is that kind of getting at one of those elements that you know why why is it that they're not getting better? It's because they feeling sad is a natural human experience that the average person in a perhaps uh, uh, in a uh, neuro oh shoot I forgot the not a neurodivergent society. Oh, I got the terms wrong. I messed it up already. But it's, okay. it's a feeling that people have because they're a person. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let me, let me take it even further. Go for it. Um, let's say you have a client that comes to you and they say, um, my, I, I'm a new dad and my kids want to go to the community swimming pool. All their friends are, are getting in the swimming pool. And I uh, want to take them swimming. It's within my values to take them swimming. But I can't bring myself to get in the water. I don't want to put them in the water without me being in there. I got to watch these kids. And I get so grossed out by this water. There's poop in it there are germs in it there's old gross band-aids covered in hairs and they're gonna brush up against my face i'm gonna Probably. have yeah. just absolutely disgusting horrible experience there and i might even get sick oh i i really can't bring myself to do this you're gonna make me get sick i'm gonna die from this okay the, and then we talk about their OCD. And when we say, what's the, where's the story out of this? Well, I'm, I'm way overestimating likelihood and catastrophic nature of, of these things. And I'm doubting that all these people who have gotten out of the pool before and go home and are safe and all the times I've gotten out of a pool, maybe that's not what's happening here. And maybe this is like my worst case scenario come to light just this individual time. Well, they go through their ERP, they go through their ICBT, and they get rid of the scary story, and they no longer think that they're going to die, and they no longer think that um, if they get in the water, there's definitely going to be a gross, hairy Band-Aid that bumps up against them the whole time they're in the pool, but they still might be more disgusted by the water in that pool than the average person, mm -hmm. because there are poop flakes in that pool. They got killed by chlorine. Any, any uh, germs on it would have been sanitized. There is people's body lotions and shampoos and stuff floating on the surface of the water. I mean, you can see that stuff with your eyes. If you look at the pool, you could see sometimes a sheen on the water where people's uh, lotion comes off. They didn't get in the shower before they got in the pool. And this person is wired to experience disgust in a more intense way than the average person. Ooh. We all experience disgust. Some people feel it really big. Some people don't feel it so much. And they're the ones who go diving in our sewers, I hope, and, and collect our trash because it doesn't have such an impact on them. And of course, if we repeatedly expose ourselves to disgusting stimuli, many of us will develop somewhat of a tolerance for it, develop some strategies of being able to approach it too, that, that it reduces how disgusting it feels and, and now we can tolerate it. But there are those among us where 
there's not much habituation to the to a disgust response mm -hmm. where it seems like disgust is just kind of baked in there in a really deep and sensory way and now we have a sensory difference where i we're both ex, uh, experiencing the world we both have a similar view of what's going on here but my subjective experience my emotional reaction to this is different than yours and we have to honor that individual difference. So for the person who's got a lot of disgust sensitivity as their reason for coming up with a scary story about why the pool was dangerous for them, I might take one approach that deals with more of an act acceptance model that deals m more with um, um, like a slow reintroduction and a mastery approach to it and uh, not counting on desensitization as the mechanism of action. But if someone had more of a fear response to this, where their story was about, well, I knew this person who got sick from a hot tub and maybe that's what's happening here in the here and now, they might dismiss that story. There's no disgust remaining and they might not need to slowly introduce themselves to the pool. If we are looking at individual neurological difference, it can impact our treatment planning. Right. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the the mastery model. I've had uh, Rich Gallagher on the podcast before, and if, if anybody's interested in wanting to learn more about the mastery model specific to um, uh, disgust-based OCD, that's uh, episode 142. I had to lo look that one up. But um, but yeah, it's for someone who's, yeah, we've, we've talked about that one before, where it's the sense of disgust that people, some people don't habituate to a sense of disgust. And people, I guess the mastery model would say, for those who aren't, just getting used to or, or tolerating things that are disgusting, the emotion of disgust. They they don't habituate to it from a classical uh, discussion or a classical model of OCD treatment. They develop a mastery over it. They develop an ability to live life with that, despite that, and find a way to make it workable for them. Is that a, a, a good uh, uh, Cliff's Notes? Yeah, that's how I see it, too. That's how I see it, too. And... Um there are just so there's a plethora of ways that we might tweak our treatment here or there mm -hmm. based off of our understanding about things like disgust habituates more slowly than fear when we look at the core dimensions model of ocd cool we know something we can adjust our treatment based off of it we just need a little bit of nuance to our treatment and that's what so the neurodiversity affirming practice here is not universal design everyone goes slow it's universal design. Everyone gets the question asked to them, why are you staying out of the pool? And I went past just, oh, I'm scared that I'll die. And I got to, even when I want to go back in it, my disgust reaction is still bigger. And I'm thinking of that as just like a sensory thing that it's not going to completely change. That's, that's more neurological. Right. So we're kind of asking asking clinicians to be a little, to, to investigate a little bit more, to look a little bit further into the the why why is this why is this problem a problem to 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 be simplistic about it is it just is it just you don't wanna or is there something about it that's a little bit a little bit deeper a little bit more firm within their neurology that would lead them to mm -hmm. have this aversion to it in a sense yeah let me give another example of a kind of trait so i've i've got this presentation that i built out where i try to break down ocd into some trait level um 
subjective experiences that there might be natural variation of throughout the population and say that the behavior pattern of the negative reinforcement loop that leads me to compulsion is um, sort of a a common result if I have some of these traits. It doesn't mean that any one of these traits is guaranteeing that I'm gonna end up with OCD. And it's also not saying that these traits, like the genetic makeup that gives you, say, disgust hypersensitivity, that's not OCD. That is your neurology, that is your individual traits. And then OCD is when you start telling yourself a scary story because of this, and then you start doing a behavior that's supposed to prevent that scary story, and then it takes away the fear, and now you're hooked doing that behavior until the cows come home, even though it's not working anymore. Um, yeah, the, I want to explore a few more of these traits. I'm sorry, I'll lose my train of thought when I have too, too, too big of a thought here. Now, I want to explore some more of these traits. Um, let me give my second example okay. that helps us do that. All right. Okay. So my second example is about how we experience thought. If um, I'm walking by the top of a staircase and there's somebody in front of me I might have the thought naturally, hmm, I could push this person over the stairs. And that's happened to probably everyone at some point or another. What would happen if I did this? Or am I capable of doing this? Um, but it's probably in one ear out the other. Mm -hmm. It's probably not something we ever invested in. And with OCD, we have a tendency to say, well, you had one of these normal thoughts that a lot of people have. We've got this study from undergraduates endorsing all of these taboo and harm related thoughts. So these are normal thoughts and you're having one of these normal thoughts, but you've attributed it to something else. You've misattributed it. You think that this is because you're dangerous. When in reality, it's just because you have OCD. It's just a random thought. It's just nothing. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna be fine. And so um, that's, that's one way of understanding what, what, why the person with OCD, when they walk by that staircase and they envision pushing the person down, they have a huge reaction to it. And now they stick their hands in their pockets. They stay away from the staircase. If mm -hmm. that person's there, they definitely are gonna keep their hands away from any position where Stand they're gonna push. Stand back by 10 yards. Mm -hmm. and yep. count to 10 in their head so that they're distracted and not thinking angry thoughts that could lead them to any, anything like that. Mm -hmm. So this person does their ERP, they do their ICBT, they learn that this thought is just a thought, doesn't mean anything, they're not gonna hurt anybody. And now they can walk right on by that person without their hands in their pockets, they could be right behind them, they don't have to distract themselves, etc. Great, but that person might still experience an intrusion, an image mm -hmm. as they walk by, same as I do, where they see that person falling down the stairs. But I think that there's a big difference between the way that I've, I experienced that intrusive thought and the really extreme versions of those thoughts that my clients have told me. Because when I experienced that thought of walking by the top of the stairs, it's a millisecond long there's no vibrant color. There's no emotion to it. There's no sound on it. There's no physical touch sensation. The person with OCD, it felt like a whole scene played out. They saw the person's face 
with this look of surprise and shock and being hurt by the fact that they could be betrayed in this way. They see a red splotch of blood at the bottom of the stairs and hear clunking of the person's head as, it's, as they're falling. And they feel anger in themselves and they feel an urge to reach their hands up and push or something like that. And it's this really highly sensory experience. Not everyone with OCD, but I think there's a lot of variability about how sensory we experience our imagination and we experience thought. And folks who have really highly sensory thought experiences are going to be much more likely than folks who have very low sensory thought experiences to say, this means something. And they're more likely to develop a scary story that justifies their compulsion because they're looking around and no one else has got a terrified look on their faces to walk up by the top of the stairs because I didn't experience it the same way you did. Then we deal with their OCD through ERP, through ICBT. They walk by the top of that stairs. They still have the highly sensory thought but they know not to do anything about it. They practice the strategy. Everything gets worse when I take this thought seriously. Mm -hmm. So I'm not gonna take it seriously. In fact, I'm gonna encourage it because if I start avoiding stairs, I get scared of stairs again. So I'm walking right by, mm -hmm. but I still had to basically walk right by and take this hit, this painful experience of the intrusive image coming in. And it's like I stepped on attack, but I know it's not gonna hurt me. So I just keep walking. It's imaginary. It doesn't do anything to me. But it's, it's not imaginary in that it hurts. There's a real pain associated with it. And so when, yeah, this is just another example of how someone might say, yeah, but I still get the images. And then we say, well, you haven't done your compulsions enough. Well, actually, maybe it's more about acceptance that when I get these images in my head, it's, it's more painful than when my therapist gets this image in their head. And when they're saying, hey, this is nothing. Why are you investing in it? You have to learn to live with it. There maybe should be a whole lot more compassion about what learning to live with this feels like. But when it's not threatening, maybe it's not going to be the first association that they have. They've been through this enough times without responding to it. Maybe they learn that they don't really need to have this thought to begin with it doesn't they have another expectation of what would happen when they walk by the top of the stairs but for a long time probably what happens is a lot of dismissing something that is an active process and difficult to do and people need a little bit of an attaboy when they do that and they need a little bit of understanding when they're struggling with it when we're saying this is no different than the way i experience it yeah again so highly sensory thoughts are not ocd mm -hmm. it's the story that are the OCD, but highly sensory thoughts would be a predisposing factor that someone could develop that OC process starting to do. That's how I see OCD. And I got a lot of traits that I think all predispose people to this. Right, right. And, and you know, I'm sure we could go through all those and make this a 17 hour um, uh, uh, podcast, which is would, would be delightful to like... Uh, well, the the folks who go to the OCD conference to me, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but could would it, would it be all right to publish a list of those or to post a list of those somewhere? Sure, I will post my uh, my slide from the talk that I have. Um, but know that these are very much a work in progress. What I'm yeah. trying to do is workshop this and get feedback from people who uh, 
who will take me seriously and put some effort into this and not just straight up reject it. But I'd love to post my list and have have some commentary. And you know what? If you offer me good commentary, I'm going to write back to you and I'm going to want to involve you in this. So, so careful what you wish for. Oh, goodness gracious. All right. So watch out, everybody. But well, I'll, I'll try to, um, if I once I get that list from Jeremy, I'll try to post that to the uh, episode page for this at Fearcast Podcast. But um, so to so to kind of go with this, if I'm if I'm understanding this, because I'm I'm I like other listeners and kind of hearing hearing the depth of this conversation for the first time, and you know trying to wrap my head around what this would look like. What does this then mean for my clients? Just kind of go with this example. With this client, you're talking about where, all right, they've they have this very intense mental experience, this very intense visual visual mental experience of seeing someone get hurt. But they've done treatment, right? They've done the exposures. They've they've done the scripting. Uh, they've reduced their compulsions. Let's say this person has reduced compulsions entirely. They can walk up. They can have. They can bring that thought on, perhaps. But they st- or not, but 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 and 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 they still have that thought. I certainly can hear some clinicians saying, "Well." We need to tamp down the experience of that so that you have that thought like I have that thought, meaning it's not as crystal, it's not as crystal clear as you do. I also could imagine some clinicians saying, or not clinicians, that individual saying, well, I still have the intensity of this thought. I must have failed treatment because isn't the appropriate isn't isn't the outcome of treatment supposed to be that I don't have these thoughts or I don't have them as much or I don't have them as clearly as I do? So I must not be doing something. So I should be doing more treatment, push harder, do better. Because where would that? What what is what would be the appropriate response to this individual who is perhaps either experiencing either to the therapist who says, "Well, you need to push harder," or to the individual who says, "But I." You know, I'm I, I failed my treatment because I still have them. But as you're saying, you're you're saying this they have a neurodivergency where they have a predisposition of really really clear thoughts. So where where would you take this? So what I would want to do would be to ask the questions that I need to present the conceptualization and to get the client on board with the conceptualization. And then we would start presenting options about where we want to go. Whereas your first example is the the clinician is saying we should push harder. That's not options. That's an opinion. And, you know, or, or the client's opinion. I would want to say, here's what I think is happening here. I think we've knocked out the scary story, but you get these intrude. You're, you're very highly sensory imaginative. And so these experiences are going to be a little bit painful. But, hey, when you start avoiding them, it becomes really problematic again. We've, we've gone through this before. So what are we supposed to do here? Let's get the the client's buy-in about them saying, well, here's where I want to be flexible about this. So here's where I don't. And this example, they probably always want to be flexible, right? We, we worked with our clients enough. I don't want mean to assume that I know what everyone client's experience is, but these scary intrusive thoughts that are really just purely imagination are probably something that we want to be able to bring along for the ride with whatever activities we're doing because there's there's very little real harm that comes from them, although they are uncomfortable experiences. But if someone was saying, I'm getting intrusive harm thoughts when I'm having sex, and we were saying, 
will be have this really sensory experience about a really taboo sexual topic that is very out of line with the person's uh, experiences while they're having sex with a partner in, in a loving relationship or something like that. Then, um, you know, we maybe wouldn't want to say you intentionally think this thought at that moment. There might be times where we allow people a little bit more accommodation around their behavior because we're saying, I never had to deal with that. I wouldn't want to deal with that either. That does sound objectively awful. Maybe we have some other strategies for dealing uh, with this. Even things like distraction, even things that are, uh, you know, in, in EMDR, mm -hmm. the eye movement, what does it do? It probably is a tax on working memory that dulls the re-experiencing, that allows people to uh, engage with this feared internal stimulus in a safer way and build an expectation that if they think about this, if they allow the thought that it's going to be more tolerable because they were practicing some sort of distraction with it, we can use those sorts of approaches even though whoa that's a safety behavior yeah but walking by the top of the stairs i can deal with it with my partner maybe i use some of these strategies i'm able to be flexible and take an individual approach and not say just if there's any safety behavior it's automatically a compulsion mm -hmm. then he safe if and we need to excise from every place in your life these patterns and i'm the boss of telling you which patterns need to be chopped out and which ones um, are not OCD and say, okay, there's more to this. The clients get to have some of their own say. They might know more of, of what their options are in this. So in a sense for this, for the second example, saying perhaps there can be slight accommodation to grant greater functioning. Yeah. And things, another accommodation might be I'm with my partner, I'm getting intrusive thought and I say, <laughs> you know what, I want to stop. I don't want to continue with what we're doing. I'm like withdrawing my consent for this sexual activity because I'm no longer enjoying it. I'm having intrusive thoughts during it where we might've said, carry along as, as normal. Don't let the thoughts rule you. Well, if we're saying there really is a, uh, a level of distress and discomfort that comes out of this, I don't want you to have the experience of distressing sexual contact. So uh, there's, there's a number of accommodations we might consider differently if people are saying that this is what the experience feels like them in ways that are surprising to us. Right, right, right. I, I, and I could hear in, in the back of my head again, I'm also hearing a, a, a potential criticism of, of saying, is the, isn't this, is this just accommodation? And can, can inappropriate accommodation be a byproduct of taking this approach. Yes, that's a real risk. I just don't want to throw away the value of an ideographic approach to treatment yeah. because it does take risks with accommodating patients because it, it does, it does. That's where it takes, you know, the art of psychotherapy to be able to navigate these things. I hear the magic in this approach in this sense, and maybe I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here always questioning myself. I'm like, am I wrapping my head around this the way I ought to be? But again, I'm learning with everybody else here. The magic of this I could certainly see is for someone to say, all right, I, as an individual, may have a trait or two 
let's just say a trait or two that predisposes me. I experience the world in a different way, however that may be in the sensory experience that that person has. So that, that may be an area that I need to accept as a feature of my life. Not a bug, but a feature. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I get. I get to have these terrible, horrible mental images. But yeah, but when I also read a book, I get to have these wonderful mental experiences mm-hmm. that is beyond what my therapist or what other people get to experience, and it's incredibly enjoyable. So I have this, and this is something that isn't a problem necessarily unless I label it as such. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to say this is the thing that I have but I need to figure out how I'm going to wield this and respond to this in a way that makes my life more functional and meaningful. And if that means in some areas of my life, I'm going to need to accommodate or I'm going to need to maybe not do, quote, perfect therapy in order to get there, that gives me more, that gives my life more joy or more meaning or more engagement or whatever it is the case may be because mm-hmm. but but i think and i think this is it, maybe i'm understanding well hopefully i think that's the right direction but i could also see someone saying all right i have this neurodivergency that is wonderful and terrible but i'm also gonna say that i have this neurodivergency over here as a way of saying no no no, i need to accommodate for this and i need everybody else to accommodate for this because it's just really scary and i don't really want to do it so I think that comes down to hopefully the willingness and the awareness of the individual to know when they are being honest with themselves about this is an experience that they have that is above and beyond and, and, and different than the bell curve norm. Mm-hmm. And there are some areas that OCD is, has a, a greater foothold in your life that we need to be honest about. And my response to that is our clients are already doing that. They are, whether they've heard of a model like this or not, they're still coming in and saying, yeah, I know for everyone else, but for me, it's different. And our tools are still psychoeducation. We lay out, this is the way OCD works. This is what happens. This is why you would think that way. And they get on board and they decide to do whatever treatment model we're comfortable doing because they get you know, with ERP, they get the paradoxical nature of how if I face my fears, I feel less scared. And um, there, there's buy-in anyway. There's, there's an overcoming of that initial hesitancy in almost all of our clients. So I think that it's valid to say, well, I'm worried that I will give someone an identity to hang on to. And now they'll say, well, this will never change. But clients are already saying that when they come into the office. So all we're doing is validating and thinking in shades of gray with them. And I, I dislike the approach of, I can't tell them everything that I know because they'll use this to create the, the reasons why they're the exception. I can't show them all my cards because this is a game where I have to hold on to power so that I can show them the way that they need to be going. I'm always going to be the kind of guy who wants to lay all the cards out on the table ethically. Um, And I think when we do that, we give people the opportunity to say, okay, well, it felt like I was special, but now I see a way forward with this. Right. This is the, 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 
in a sense, they, they, they are special in that they have a neurodivergency. There's something that they're experiencing that is unique, but it doesn't mean that it's a problem. It's again, it's, I, maybe I'm using this incorrectly, but it's a, it's a, it's not a bug. It's a feature. It can be seen as one. Okay. Well, let me, let me comment on that piece. Okay. Yeah. So, um, they have a difference and it's not a bug. It's a feature is fair because we're all individuals and our individual makeup. I don't want to, to label in a way that says who you are is inherently pathological. Right. However, there are absolutely traits that are not a superpower. There's a lot of this neurodivergence language that I think it's misused in assuming that all traits are valuable. They're just not in the right context because we see folks um, who have sensory needs that are so extreme that it's very hard for them to have relationships. Right. That is that is not necessarily something where you say, well, if I've just found a society that accepted this, then I would fit in just fine because there might be a whole lot of difference. There it might be that, th that there is very few people that would feel comfortable with the amount of sensory input that, that you need on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, we can, we can accommodate, but it, it is a disability. It is, a, if I'm using this model of disability saying you don't fit into society, that causes problems. It is a disability in that sense, but it also is just, a disadvantage or someone who's neurodivergent where we say that the um, the nerves that go to your eyes are not well developed and you have uh, visual impairment that comes from that not a superpower sure it's not inherently a superpower so I won't take a, a check where I say well all these things are potentially features that we just need to honor but i do want to look at um what did i not ask yet how have i not understood you what are what are the parts of you that we don't have to look at as the treatment goal as instead more of saying we're going to build understanding around this and then with a better understanding your your goal of what you wanted to get back to you're going to have uh, a clearer understanding of how to get from a to b okay yeah so what does recovery look like then what does the definition of recovery look like with with this approach in mind i don't think it's going to be all that different from anything else that we know about what recovery looks like i think there might be a recognition that some of the traits stick around after treatment is complete you might have called that partial remission or something like that um, i could talk about my own really deep beliefs about what recovery for ocd looks like because i haven't been a clinician and doing this for a while I, I like to take people to a place where they don't believe in their obsessions anymore i don't think a 35 percent reduction on the y box uh, cuts it for me in terms of when I'm graduating people. I want people to be certain that they can trust themselves about something where they form, where they were uh, formerly unable to believe something that they already did know. Mm -hmm. I, that's that's my goal when I get there. But from a neurodiversity affirming perspective, it's like let people set their own goals. That's kind of what we're doing already, and conceptualize them well and give them the tools bespoke to their own traits that gets them as close as possible to their goals. And there might be traits that are still expressed at the conclusion of therapy, but that was going to be true of anything. 
So maybe an additional component would be something like self-compassion, but all the self-compassion work in OCD right now, I think it's a crucial part of, of OCD therapy as well at this point. So I don't, I don't know that I actually have a huge difference in what recovery is really going to look like. There's one point I do want to make with this, though, about what recovery does not look like. Ooh, okay. And we're going, we're going back to what I was saying in the beginning about the... Um, the, the model of if I expose myself to this for long enough, then I will habituate to it. Well, what does habituate mean? Mm. We use the word in our community habituate as if it means desensitize. It does not mean desensitize. Habituate means I don't do a behavioral response to the stimulus anymore. We got these sea slugs that put their eye stalks out and we shock them with a zapper and they pull their eye stalks back in because there's danger. But then we wait 10 minutes and they stick their eye stalks back out. So we zap them and they pull the eye stalks back in. And two minutes later, they stick them out. We zap them, they pull them in 30 seconds later. Eventually they stop pulling the eye stalks back in because you can zap me all you want. There's no big problem when you zap me. Did those slugs stop feeling pain? Well, slugs don't really feel pain. They're not a complicated enough organism to, to feel pain in that way. What happened was they stopped behaviorally responding. There was not a sensitization or desensitization. They habituated and they no longer give the behavioral response. When we're looking at desensitization in our field, what we hope is that the stress diminishes over time. I get in a cold pool and I'm like, brr, this is really uncomfortable, but I stay in it for long enough. And eventually this is just cold and I can have fun in here. It's not painful. It's just cold. And I desensitize to the extreme nature of what that stimulus is. That That is a method that um, we tend to get a lot of patients saying, wow, ERP worked so wonderfully for me because I used to feel this like extreme feeling about this and I've really desensitized to it. Maybe some of the disgust stuff, maybe some of the fear stuff. But we have this other model, the inhibitory learning model. And it's saying... These exposures that we were doing maybe had their mechanism of action in a different piece of this puzzle. That perhaps we weren't actually desensitizing to the stimulus and we weren't extinguishing a uh, association between stimulus and, and pain. But instead what we were doing is we were building a new association between stimulus and some other outcomes, some resilient outcome. And we rehearse it enough that that's the first thing that comes to mind. And now it doesn't matter if I, if I desensitized to my distress level, I might have built an association that I can handle this level of distress. My willingness increased, my confidence in my ability to handle situations increased, regardless of if my distress reduced. So great, I, we liked the inhibitory learning model. It seems to jive with the way that we see the world. There's some experimental evidence supporting it. And um, it gives us as clinicians something to say when, cl when clients are like, are telling us that their distress didn't come down, but we can say, well, are you more confident that we could do this exposure again next time in session? Yeah, it stinks. I don't like feeling this, but I guess it doesn't kill me. I guess I'm proud of myself for having faced this fear. So yeah, we could do it again. My willingness increased. Love inhibitory learning. Let me take it to where the, uh, the what I don't want therapy outcomes to look like. Okay. Okay. So if what inhibitory learning is, is saying, 
through experiencing a different outcome, I have a different expectation of what's going to happen. I've learned to inhibit my behavioral response that was supposed to keep me safe um, because there was no point to doing it. It was pointless. Great. Let's compare and contrast that to the concept of learned helplessness that we know this study, you know, I just said the sea slug study, let's talk about uh, Seligman and his dogs, where he builds this contraption that holds these dogs in it and the dogs get zapped and it hurts them. And so they frantically try to escape this contraption, but there's no escape. And he zaps them and zaps them and zaps them again. They're trying to escape every time until they give up and they lay down on the floor and they say, well, I guess I can't escape from this. So what's the point of even trying? And then Seligman's research assistants unlock the contraption, make it escapable now and zap the dogs again. And the dogs don't even try mm -hmm. to escape because they learned I don't need to. Uh, this is what my life holds for me. I can just sit here and take the zap. So did they learn I can't escape or did they learn I can take the zap? In inhibitory learning when it's, oh, this is a really anxious experience, did I learn I can take the fear or did I learn I'm a problem to everybody? I better learn how to accept this fear because there's no way around it. I'm going to feel this fear in my life. I'm going to feel this feeling in my life. And I'm a problem to everyone if I don't. And really, it's inescapable. So. I don't deserve to be peaceful. I don't deserve to be calm. I don't deserve to be happy. That's a problem for me. That's a problem. That's learned helplessness. So I don't think that's where most of our patients end up. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that there's all these patients out there who have gone through ERP and they've done an inhibitory learning model and here they are saying I'm recovered and really they're in hell. But there are some patients who are like that. And in the autism world, there are a lot more patients who are like that, who have gone through these coercive kind, kinds of therapy. And what we see is the overlap between autism and OCD. A lot of adult folks who are autistic are talking about how harmful behaviorism was to them. And we're seeing a lot of people say, oh, I don't even want to touch this. And we're seeing this, um, this pressure. Can the OCD treatment community even admit that the potential for harm out of exposure therapy exists? And we see a lot of people that say, you can't traumatize people with imaginal exposure. You can't traumatize someone with facing a fear about an irrational risk. There was no real harm there. But if the person believed it to be real, what's the difference? Mm. And if I didn't understand what their subjective experience was and it was so much more intense than mine, I was missing out on something. And so it's probably these are the things that are not going to hit criterion A for PTSD, but will make people once bitten twice shy around doing any exposure therapy in the future or thinking that even a behavioral therapist could conceptualize them. So we have to take these accounts of well-meaning psychotherapy for OCD having the potential to create learned helplessness. We have to take these accounts seriously. And what treatment, yeah, what, what resolution of OCD does not look like is I made my disability invisible. It was no one else's problem but my own. I was able to hide it well. I was just able to hide it again, yeah. Because if to get out of bed in the morning, I have to climb Mount Everest and everyone else just swings their feet over and hits their feet on the ground, 
let's not lie about that. Let's not pretend everyone's on equal playing ground here. Let's do a little bit of accommodation, a little bit of sensitivity. Let's let people be a little bit sensitive to themselves and not just put themselves into a place of, of I need to be as normal as possible. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like this is where I get pushback a lot because as I say, OCD is so treatable. We can get rid of the obsessional story. That's how I see it. I, it's what I strive for in my patients. So when we treat OCD, there should be nothing left. And I generally agree that people should be able to do all their avoided activities that they were missing out on that were governed by their obsessional stories. And I would be guardrailing to try to say, well, there's always going to be some something left on the table. I don't think that's the case. But we do have to pay attention to these stories where people say, I was traumatized by ERP because I see people shaking their head at it, but it's everywhere. And I don't think all these people are making it up. And I work with some of these people after going through experiences that they felt were really harmful. And guess what? We were able to have success again. But go figure. Maybe there is a more sensitive way. That's awesome. Is there? I know we're kind of getting to the end of our our time. We've 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 gone through a ton of information. Is there? Is there anything else that you want to add at the tail end of this to to offer encouragement or kind of give yeah. listeners a clearer idea about, or maybe even a, a a place to start? Maybe even the clinicians a place to start. Yeah. Um, at this point, I have less helpful stuff that, that I can give out to the population of clients who are interested in this. I could put the, um, the slide I have uh, on the blog you attached to your uh, show. And I have a YouTube channel, but most of my videos, all my videos, I think, except one are private. Uh, but I do have the neurodiversity affirming care talk for OCD on my YouTube channel. So I'm Jeremy Schumann's ID on YouTube. You can find me just by Googling Jeremy Schumann, or we could put a link to that there. Um, and I offer individual uh, consultation for folks, but I am very busy and that's not the, the optimal way to get um, to get care is to be like, oh, I just need one person. There are a number of clinicians that are doing this kind of work and they don't all think the exact same way that I do. So um, asking some screening questions as you are looking for your provider uh, about what do you what do you know about neurodiversity? So I have also a Facebook group called OCD and neurodivergence. And right now it is an op it's a private group. So you have to like ask permission to be in it. And it's not a whole lot of it's not chatty because I can't moderate all the chat there. Um, it's more right now for clinicians. And I'm hopeful that what will happen is that over time, more and more folks who are already doing this work, I am not making this up. I'm stealing it directly from autism self-advocacy networks work that they do in autism and just bringing it to this world. More, more people who think like me are going to coalesce around these ideas and we are going to be able to put out sort of a volley of information on this because right now if i talk about this i talked about it at the conference some people are interested some people don't really care but if we coordinate where folks bring what they know to the table through their lived experience and they stick their neck out a little bit like i'm trying to do in this this part of my career about some of these ideas that this is how we get 
tipping points to happen. This is how we, we make changes, that there was this pulling into the professional world knows everything about OCD because people have been harmed by lack of knowledge for OCD for so long. And now we're seeing this like TikTok generation come back with no, it's all from the grassroots. And I want to see the folks who are part of this grassroots who know something, who have experience with this, who are already saying stuff of their own uh, discovery uh, in their practice. I want to see them come together. I want to see them put out their knowledge all around the same time. And we'll bring this stuff to conferences. We'll bring this stuff to um series where it's not just one person's voice like that's how we're going to get change here so if you know something about what um, adhd and ocd looks like you're part of my process if you know something about what autism co-occurring with ocd looks like you're part of my process if you know something about liberation oriented psychotherapy part of my process if you are thinking like me about the uh, the phenotype versus disorder concept, then absolutely let's, let's touch base on this and let's build this out. But it's not just all, all my idea. It's that I want to see the folks who know something, who've been afraid to say it because they don't have the backing of an R1 grant or something like that. Or, mm -hmm. um, I, I don't mean to put down scientists who do incredibly valuable work. It's not that we're all doing the same thing here. It's just, there's a, there is, value to these voices that come from lived experience and that's my call to action that's what i'm really trying to do here i do want to help clients but i'm one person and there's a lot of good liberation work going i want to coalesce the clinicians around the idea of bringing neurodiversity affirming care to the ocd world and that's how clients are going to benefit awesome well, I, I really appreciate you spending all this time sharing this, sharing your ideas and kind of hopes for the direction of OCD treatment and and, um, and how how these concepts can help people who are in need. So, if you if if you the listener out there have some of this interest, have this knowledge, have this ex have this uh, expertise. Um, I'll, I'll put up some information on how to get a hold of Jeremy. You can certainly contact me through uh, through um, uh, through the website or through Instagram at Fearcast Podcast, and I'll connect you. Um, but uh, if, if you have further questions about this, uh, you, the listener, have further questions about this uh, and further questions for Jeremy, uh, Jeremy, to you, would you be willing to hop back on on a future episode to answer any questions that um, somebody may have? Yeah, I would love to. That sounds really fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, I, 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 again, I'll try to post some information, but um, uh, is, is, any other places where people can learn a little bit more about you and, and where, where they can find this information? Sure. Um, so I'm clinical director at a practice in St. Louis, Missouri, the Center for Mindfulness and CBT. I don't have any writing about this on our website, but you can find my bio there. You can find my email there. Um, and there's there's a network of us kind of spread out around the country who are all talking this stuff through and it's all in its baby stages. So I could drop some of the names of some folks who are doing this work, but I'm inevitably gonna leave some very wonderful people out doing that. But um, my good friend, Teresa Q at uh, Olympic 
OCD uh, is very knowledgeable on this topic. Another friend, Skylar Ibarra, is uh, in California, and she's done some wonderful work about uh, incorporating neurodiversity ideas into the kind of OCD therapy that she does. Um, but um, oh, um, Melissa Mose is she's not doing the neurodiversity stuff in particular, but she's OCD SoCal and she's done some uh, wonderful work incorporating some ideas that neurodivergent people have benefited from into the style of therapy that she does. I really like her. Uh, but this is all in its beginnings. So I, I don't know who to point the finger to yet. I, I hope to that there's listeners on the show that next year I'll be saying, that's who you want to go talk to too, because th that's where we're at right now and trying to build this out. Well, so far I hope to have this kind of, uh, I, I don't want to take that as mine because I, I just don't know enough people who are doing that. Um, but the, the idea is to have some of this ready by the 2025 conference for Chicago and to have some of these, uh, presentations ready to, to go for that. So my hope is that there will be people who listen to the show now who say, I have ideas about this. I have something to bring to the table that will be part of a volley of proposals that I, I want to make for the 25 conference. Well, awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And um, again, this is a lot of information. And again, I, I, I like the idea. This is kind of a, it's it's a work in progress. And I'm you know I bet that if I had you on in a year to give an update, there's going to be more information. And you know this is how this is how information starts to build and a movement starts to grow and, and um, change starts is just someone saying, hey, I think that something needs to be a little bit different because I'm seeing X, Y, and Z, and then another person and another person another person comes up so again jeremy thank you so much for coming on and uh, uh sharing your ideas and sharing your passion about this yeah thank you so much for hosting me and giving me uh opportunity to get some of these ideas out there and even if they are um sort of my own and, and less in the mainstream of the scientific community i really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about them absolutely well have a good day Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for making it through that whole episode. Again, if you have questions um, for Dr. Schumann about his approach, his um, uh, his view of treating OCD from a neurodivergent affirming perspective, um, feel free to send me a message over at Fearcast Podcast, or you can send me it over at Instagram. If you have any specific questions for Jeremy about this approach, send it to me over at Instagram or Fearcast Podcast, and I'll try to grab him and have him on. On at the next uh, or have them on a future episode and we can chat further about your questions and uh, hear more about how his um, how his campaign is developing and how he's getting the word out about this approach so um, everybody please remember that the fear cast is not a substitute for psychotherapy if you need a little bit of help in your recovery go over to fearcastpodcast.com and click on the find help link and there's going to be some information for you there so until next, until next time, everybody, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.